Welcome to episode 11 of Dancing in the Rain with Pookie, an informal yet informative look at the world of mental health. I'm Dr Pookie Knightsmith. I'm the director of the Children and Young People's Programme at the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust and the vice chair of the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition here in the UK. Today, I talk to James Hilton, an ex-head teacher who suffered a nervous breakdown and now uses his experience to teach uh, school staff about stress, what to look out for and how to promote their own well-being. He kindly talked really candidly about his experience with his own stress um, and shares some advice for teachers and others out there too. I interviewed Joe Loughran, director at Time to Change, about a brand new campaign that Time to Change have bought out or started this week, which encourages young people to be in their mate's corner and to look out for signs of uh, emotional distress in their friends and reach out and help them if they think they might need help. And I consider why I find poetry a good thing and read you a couple of my own poems, um, exploring a bit about why I think that it's a good thing to write bad poetry. Let's start with something cheerful. Let's hear about this week's unsung hero. Today's unsung hero is a man you may well not have heard of. Um, That's kind of the point of unsung heroes, I guess. His name is Mark Hillier, and he is the director at Path Hill, which is an outdoor education centre in Pangbourne, which is a funny but beautiful little place in Berkshire. Like many sort of alternative provision type places path hill is somewhere that young people who haven't really managed elsewhere go um, they get referred there by um, their schools when their schools feel that they've no longer got really anything to offer them these are young people who are often on the way into the criminal justice system they are young people who often have undiagnosed and unmet needs with regards to their mental health these are young people who find it really hard to engage often with anything but they often go along to path hill and they find that through nature through being outdoors through kayaking through cooking through you name it through being treated like a person and having some really relatively sort of intensive Uh, kindness, support, caring, activity, that they perhaps find a little bit of themselves again. It's kind of a special thing to hear about, I guess. And it doesn't work for everyone. Of course it doesn't. Um, But for some young people, the it can be kind of transformative. And so this goes out not just to Mark, actually, but to all of the staff at Path Hill and other places like it, because you're working with young people who really need more from us these are young people who I feel we've we've let down and one of the things I love about talking to Mark is that he doesn't see difficult behavior he sees a young person in need and he tries to find different ways into that as to his staff and I hugely hugely admire that young people aren't born bad or difficult their behavior is many 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 times a result of their circumstances and these are often young people who've experienced extreme trauma misunderstanding misdiagnosis you name it they've often had a really tough time so hats off to mark and the team and others like them working in alternative provision for all that you're doing for the young people who come into your care thanks for all you do path hill is just one of those places that makes life feel a little bit better when you're there thank you mark and team next i'm going to share with you an interview that i held with James Hilton, who I met yesterday in Uckfield. We were both uh, delivering keynote presentations at the Lewisham Deputy Heads Conference. 
it was a fantastic event. They had all come together for a day and a half with a focus on mental health and emotional well-being. It was just great to see a room full of 50, 60 deputy heads really focused on such an important topic. I found James's presentation to be both inspiring and practical, so I asked him to speak with me for a few minutes afterwards, and here's what he had to say. My name's James Hilton. I'm a former head teacher, primary head teacher, of 15 years' experience. Uh, but for the last four years, I've been working as a speaker and writer, uh, talking about mental health of staff and stress management and resilience in particular. And before we forget to plug it, can you tell everyone the name of your book? Yes, it's Leading from the Edge, A School Leader's Guide to Recognising and Overcoming Stress, which is published by Bloomsbury Publications. And what inspired you to write it? I wanted to tell the story of what happened to me 10 years ago uh, when I had a nervous breakdown that was brought on by work-related stress. At that time, I felt very isolated, but that was partly my own fault. And I felt like I was the only school leader in the world who wasn't coping. Um, what I now recognise is that in the work that I do, a lot of people go through tough times. It's just very difficult sometimes to own up um, for fear of how you might be judged uh, by others. And I really wanted to try and write something that would help other people avoid some of the traps that I now realise that I fell into myself. Like the isolation? Because I kind of felt guilty, I think, that I wasn't coping. I stopped going, in particular, to heads meetings because I didn't really want other people thinking he's not coping. Uh, but also I would tend to go come away from heads meetings with a longer list of jobs to do than when I went in. And I strongly suspect in reality that we were all doing different things, but you tended to sit in meetings and think, blimey, Mrs. So-and-so's done that, I haven't even looked at that yet. So it, it could be sometimes a little bit disheartening, although they were a fantastic group of, of people. But the more you cut yourself off, um, the less perspective you've got on your own situation. So sometimes we end up retreating into our own silos, which is not a good place to be. So you think a different approach might have been a bit more conducive to your well-being at the time? When I went back, there were a number of, of heads in that group who were absolutely lovely and, and sort of said, if we only we'd have known what you were going through, you know, we, we'd have done anything to, to help and support you. And the irony of it was I actually cut myself off from the, the one group of people who really understood the pressures of the job. I was very lucky to have got the job in the first place. So it made it even harder to put your hand up and say, actually, I'm really struggling here. When you sometimes sort of sat in meetings with people who'd also applied for the same job and not been successful. What would you advise yourself now if you were able to talk to your former self? I think it is incredibly important to, to talk to other people because we do get into patterns of thinking which are not particularly helpful. We need to break those. We can't break those if we're always just relying on our own resources. But if you're not networking, if you're not mixing with other people, and even socially I've withdrawn to myself, you've not got anybody to challenge those sometimes erroneous thoughts so you just go around in the same ever decreasing circles. Kind of danger of rumination isn't mm. it? The, the thing I found most difficult was actually the point at which my book was released because 
I hadn't spoken about it locally at that point. So suddenly, potentially, um, not that former parents weren't necessarily going to rush out and buy a copy of my book, but it was inevitable that word of mouth would get around um, and that somebody would know somebody who'd read the book or I ended up speaking about it on local radio, at which point it became very public. And, and that felt quite um, challenging in the sense that it's one thing to talk to a complete group of strangers about it who you probably never meet again. Mm. It's different running into parents in the supermarket or former parents in the supermarket who will say things like, you know, we never I had any idea that that's what you were, you were going through. Do you think that's because you hid it well or do you think that's because people don't see what they don't want to or expect to? I'm not sure I hid it as well as I thought I had. I think um, I met up with the former governor um, in the supermarket once and um, she said, we knew you were struggling because you were stammering so much for one thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I was aware perhaps to the degree, and I think other members of the senior leadership team um, certainly knew, but it was difficult for sometimes for them to know how to support somebody who wasn't actually really recognising the issue themselves. Did anyone say anything to you? People cared. The senior leadership team tried to take on aspects and filter things out so that I didn't have to deal with them. But inevitably, when you are head of the school, the instinct for most parents is if you've got a problem, you want the head yeah. to sort it, not the not, not a head of year or a head of faculty or something like that. And if anyone is listening into the podcast who maybe is concerned about a teacher in their school or a head teacher who might be in a similar situation, what do you think they could do that's helpful? The biggest thing in terms of managing stress in other people is giving people space. I think as a school leader sometimes they, you think the onus is on you to try and find their solutions for them and most of the time you can't and I don't think actually realistically they're expecting you to do that. No. M most people's solutions have to come from within. So sometimes it's just little things like saying you know would it help you if I did your playground duty today yeah. or would it help you if you went home and missed the staff meeting this week but making them time related so that it's not, you know, permanent. You let off staff meetings, run into the playground duties forever. Yeah. But it's just giving people a little bit of breathing space sometimes to try and work their way through it and f find some of their own solutions. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's knowing, not necessarily having to be an expert yourself, but it's knowing where to signpost people to yeah. to get the support that they need. What would you share with you know people listening in? I mean, what are the few top things that you would say that they could do to support themselves or, or other staff members? I think the important thing is to find somebody to talk to. It's sometimes picking the right person. But sometimes you need somebody who's actually completely outside of the situation themselves who can give you an objective reflection back. Time management strategies that will help you feel more on top and in control of your workload because once you start to feel out of control it's quite a slippery slope uh, down and sometimes it's just about disrupting negative patterns of thinking because once we start getting in the mode of looking for the negatives 
we will find them in abundance. But actually the positives are out there as well, but sometimes it just takes a bit more uh, hard work to find them. Presumably, if people want to hear more about this, the best thing to do is to, to buy the book? Yeah, or they can contact me um, my, on my website, which is www.jameshilton.org.uk. And you're on Twitter? Twitter um, at jameshilton300. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank and you. good luck with the rest of the journey. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. It was great to talk to James. It reinforced with me one of the things I've really been enjoying about podcasting in the few weeks I've been doing it. It's week 11 now, somehow. But what I found is that when you ask people for a few minutes of their time um, so that you can record them, that they are often very willing to give that, which is incredibly kind and means that so many more of you can hear from these inspiring people rather than just the few people who were in the room at the time. But the other thing I found is that unlike when you put a camera in someone's face or you ask them to write something down, when you sit and you talk to someone, face-to-face and you're just doing an audio recording, people really do sort of open up and I think you hear the real them a little bit more. And I really felt that with James. I felt that he gave a really, really honest and open interview, which I hope you found as inspiring as I did and that it helps that little bit more to help break down the stigma around talking about our mental health that also helps anyone who might be in a similar situation themselves or know someone who is to feel just a little bit less alone and give you some starting points. Next, I'm going to talk to you about poetry. It's been a while since I talked about poetry and quite a lot of people who are listening in to the podcasts and the webinars these days don't even know of me as a poet, despite the fact it was a daily part of my life for over three years. So here's me on poetry. I thought I'd talk to you about poetry today. It's been a while since I've spoken about poetry. I'll keep this relatively brief because in my wisdom, I've decided to sit outside at half past five on a Saturday morning because I love hearing the dawn chorus. Um, but it is dark and also quite cold, but it's lovely to hear the birds. So poetry, poetry for, for some time was kind of my thing. It started by accident. I did write a poem every day for just over three years, in fact, until uh, this autumn, I suddenly decided not to do it anymore. I'm not quite sure why. I think it was partly about the fact that my daily poetry writing had stopped being something for me and started being something for everyone else. I'd by that point published a book on poetry and had quite a large audience. And I think I'd stopped uh, kind of enjoying it, really. And my poems had taken a very dark turn often. And I think it was making me sort of somewhat ruminate rather than necessarily move on with some thoughts. Anyway, I stopped. But just in the last week or so, after several months off, I found myself returning to poetry and writing a few poems. Some of them were quite miserable, but actually, um, uncharacteristically, I wrote a really, I thought, very sweet poem for my daughter Ellie, who turned seven this week. So I thought I'd share that with you just because... I'm quite proud of it actually it's not often that I'm kind of proud of stuff that I do but I like this poem and I hope that she'd like it too and I just want to record it somewhere so that it's out there for her one day to find when she's bigger it's called I hold her tight I hold her tight this girl of mine for fear that she might fall for fear that with a looser grip she'd not be here at all I kiss her boo-boos wipe her tears shoulder worries combat fears I hold her hand and mop her brow I comfort love and show her how I hold her tight, this girl of mine, until one day I see. My grip has changed. I don't hold her. My daughter now holds me. I hope you like it. You might not. I enjoyed writing it. And actually, the process of writing it and holding my daughter that night was the thing that enabled me to really relatively easily in the end get through that night. So 
I find poetry to be a really useful tool for working with emotions and I kind of feel anyone can use it, which is the topic of my book, Using Poetry to Promote Talking and Healing, should you wish to buy it. It's available from all reputable bookstores, maybe. You can buy it on Amazon or from Jessica Kingsley Publishing, certainly. It looks at poetry as a kind of means into conversation, both looking at other people's poems, and there are over 100 of my poems in there. You can use the starting points, many any cheerful topics kind of bullying and abuse self-harm and suicide you name it cheerful topics they're all in there and there are questions that I have as, as discussion points that you might use with a young person and then I also have sort of extension activities sometimes which involve changing the poem or writing your own sometimes it involves going and using other media to explore it I also look at how you can use writing poetry as a way of engaging with your thoughts and feelings and one of the big barriers that people come up against when it comes to the idea of writing poetry is, well, I might be rubbish at it. And so I just briefly today wanted to talk about why you don't have to be good at poetry in order to get out a lot. You might choose never to share your poems with anyone else in the world, although I think you get a lot out of it when you do. Um, But you might choose just to write them completely for yourself. I had three key reasons that I shared in a blog post for my publisher at one point about why I, I felt writing bad poetry is a good thing. So I thought I'd share that. So the first one is having poetry as a form of reflection and kind of moving on so I like poetry and that it's kind of finite so when you write in prose sometimes it feels like it's never finished and you always can add more and sort of change it I like with a poem that you can sit down and relatively quickly create something that has kind of a beginning and a middle and an end if you want it to and then you can just box it off and and move it on so for me my daily poetry writing did often become kind of a form of reflection on the day I'd quite often found if I dealt with a really difficult scenario that I'd find myself channeling the person that I'd worked with and turning that into a poem, maybe thinking about things from their point of view, or increasingly as my own mental health deteriorated, I thought about things from my point of view, but put things in a poem and then boxed it off and was able to move on. For me, poetry writing kind of formed a bridge between perhaps a difficult day and a nice evening with my husband. It can be a way, yeah, to reflect and to move on. Doesn't matter how good the poetry is, you might tear it up and throw it away afterwards. It's the process of writing it down, boxing things up and moving on. The next one is that poetry can be a great way of communicating how we're feeling. I don't think you need any rules to write poetry. I think it's a great way to reflect on kind of what's happening right here and right now for you and what you're experiencing like right at the moment as you're writing it. What you will find sometimes is that you'll read back your own poems and not really recognise because it's very reflective of a specific moment. I particularly find this because I write poems really fast and I am really caught up in the moment when I write them and I will literally read them back. I found this when I edited my book and put together the anthology for it. I'd look back at the poems and be like, oh, wow, I don't remember writing that at all. The nice thing about poetry, you can kind of use any words that you want. You can use grammar however you want. You can basically just break all the rules. So with prose, I think sometimes we can feel a bit constrained. But with poetry, it's a bit like abstract art. You write however the hell you like. You make it your own. It doesn't matter. It can rhyme or not rhyme. It can be long or short or anything you like. Um, and sure, you can use uh, like poetic forms as a starting point if you want to. And I sometimes find the rigid structure really helpful. So I'll often write like a sonnet or a haiku. And if you want to do that again, um, if you find my poetry, poetry blog which I will link to but if you search for Pookie Poetry it's just a WordPress blog there are like quite a lot of prompts on there that you can use as starting points but also in my book there are 50 different prompts that kind of you know give you a starting point and I talk through the 
like some po common poetic forms too if you want to use that and um, for some reason I often find that a poem will communicate better how I'm feeling than uh, many other forms actually I talked before about how poetry is finite but I also think that poetry can kind of grow and change with us so I think that we can go back to a poem and edit it if we want to, if our thoughts and feelings have changed. And the other thing that can be really useful is like putting a poem out there and seeing how other people respond to it too. And it can be an interesting starting point for discuss discussions about our own feelings. I kind of feel at this point that I want to read you another one of my poems. I'm trying to think, like, I, I think maybe The Grand Master, which talks, uh, I've talked a lot about anorexia lately. I think I should be forgiven for that, bearing in mind that I am uh, suffering with it. Um, but I feel that this one really did did explain how I was feeling at some point and actually I kind of feel a little bit like perhaps I'm back there now so this is a poem called Grandmaster or Life and I wrote it when I first embarked on therapy for my anorexia and I find myself actually returning to this poem as I finish working with one therapist and consider embarking with another buddy would obviously love to join in Grandmaster or Life Anorexia is a game I play each day, a game which requires a lot of pieces. It is chess. Always I am thinking several moves ahead. I'm not a grandmaster yet, but I know that I could be. The promise is there. I have played for many years, though I have rarely dedicated myself as I should. A grandmaster dedicates themselves every day. Chess is their first thought every day. How to move those pieces? But... I relinquish my pieces. Willingly, I share them with my husband, my friend and my therapist. I hand the pieces over. Help me play the game, I say, passing them rooks and knights, removing them from my own hands. Knowing as I do so that I can manipulate my allies into helping me to play the game or I can let them teach me a new game. A new game would be good, I say, but I'm not sure. They want me to learn a new game, need me to. Chess is an old game. It's tiring to watch and they do not want to see me end at checkmate. Undecided, I try to learn their game, their rules. It is a less beautiful game by far. It is less complicated and it never seems to end. It is not satisfying to play. Though perhaps this is because I am an amateur. I will try. But I will keep a separate set of chess pieces. I can choose to play chess if I wish to. And each day I will take out those pieces and polish them and decide whether to place them on the board. Grandmaster or life, I will decide each and every day. It certainly proved a good starting point for discussion for me and my therapy. And maybe I will share it with my new therapist as and when I discover one. Or maybe I'll share it with my old therapist if I choose to go back to him. I'm kind of at a turning point. Anyhow, my thoughts on poetry. I'd love to know if any of you out there have used or would like to use poetry. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this little segment on poetry and it wasn't too tricky. And good luck with your own. Last but not least, you're going to hear from Joe Lofferin, director at Time to Change. Joe and I met when we were at Sky News recently, where bizarrely we were both in the same studio talking about the same thing, and yet they filmed us live but separately. It was really quite odd, but hopefully it helped to spread the message about the fantastic new campaign that Joe will tell you all about in the following interview.
I'm Jo Lochran and I work uh, for Time to Change, the Anti-Stigma programme, um, and I am the Director of Operations. Okay, so Jo and I are currently at Sky News, having just spoken about a brand new campaign. Can you tell us a bit about the campaign, Jo? So this is the kick-off of a five-year campaign, actually. Um, so we're looking uh, to uh, friends to be in their corner. So the idea around this is that um, our research over the last year or so has really told us that young people really value and will look to friends for help and support in all sorts of areas and areas and what we want to do really is just to tap into that level of wanting to support so that if a young person is experiencing a mental health problem that young people can be in their corner it's not replacing um, support from parents or from professionals or from teachers but it is that important extra bit that can make all the difference to somebody who's experiencing a mental health problem. And why is the role of the friend so important? Because um, actually our research tells us that young people will look to peers, certainly as they're getting into their secondary school years, they tend to turn away from parents and turn towards their peers, both to get information and knowledge, but also in terms of sharing secrets, in terms of sharing things that are bothering them. And so that friendship group becomes really, really um, uh, very, very key. So a really good example of this is we, we have um, Nicole's friend Catherine um, uh, took time to read up about her mental health problem because she'd been told that, that what her diagnosis was and so she went off, looked up on the internet, found out a little bit more about it and it just meant that she could talk to her in a more open and honest way and to support her if she chose to ask her for that support too. So that's a really kind of tangible example of how a friend can help. Is there any sort of general guidance that you're giving as part of the campaign as to how friends can help? Well, we're launching um, a number of um, films at the moment, which again are um, aimed at sort of getting young people to think about how they might help and support. But there are really, really easy things like reaching out to somebody, send a text. We talk to a lot of young people who say when their friend's been in hospital with their mental health problem, they've just sent them a card, a note, a text, and that has made a massive impact a massive difference to that individual's recovery. Listen, don't judge. Mm -hmm. That's a you know can't underestimate the value of being able to listen to um, somebody speaking about um, what they're experiencing, and do something together. The ultimate key is do ordinary and everyday things. Do the things that you would normally do in order to be in your mate's corner for any. So it sounds like you're encouraging friends to do what friends do. <laughs> Indeed we are. And also, you know, it's really important that we um, give young people tips in terms of how to specifically support friends who might have mental health problems. Because of course that's something that um, is that extra mile in many ways. Um, one of the things that we um, want to sort of really emphasise as part of this campaign is this is one part of a larger piece of work. So we're working in schools, we're working with teachers, we're working with head teachers and with the people who sit around schools like healthy schools mm -hmm. to make sure that all of those individuals have enough knowledge and experience to be able to support in an appropriate way and most importantly to be able to know when they need to signpost on to somebody else. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to encourage friends to take on that responsibility to keep something to themselves that they feel either unable to cope with or that they feel actually they're in a position where they want to reach out to a professional, to a teacher, to a parent in order to get some extra support. We've got some great resources that go with this, so could you just tell us a little bit, because lots of people listening in will be parents or teachers and they yep. might want to know how they can sort of work with their pupils, with yep. their children on this. Yep. So definitely go onto our website, so that's um, time-to-change.org.uk and if you go through to our resources, we've got stuff specifically aimed at parents, we've got stuff specifically 
specifically aimed at young people and we've got specifically aimed at um, delivery of lessons in schools. So there is a whole plethora of stuff that people can use in order to address this subject, particularly around the kind of how we all think and act towards mental health problems. So that stigma and discrimination that might currently exist. Yeah. And so just to, to finish, if we were going to give sort of one take home point for anyone who might be worried about a friend, actually I think of any age, what would it be? I think it would be to make sure that you are available. Just make sure that you're available, you're doing the things that you would normally do and don't treat them negatively um, just because they're experiencing a mental health problem. Do ordinary everyday things, be there, be in their corner. That makes it sound really doable, and I guess that's the, the beauty of the campaign, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Joe. No Good problem. luck with the campaign. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found this week's podcast interesting. I would love to hear from you. Any thoughts, feelings, comments, good, bad, ugly? No, maybe not the ugly. I'm not great at dealing with the ugly. But the good and the bad, certainly, let me know. Um, if you've got things you'd like to hear on future podcasts, if you've got ideas for unsung heroes or resources you'd like to review, if you'd like me to interview you or you'd like to review a resource, let me know. And I can arrange that for you. If there is a book or a resource that has particularly taken your fancy that you'd love to provide a interview or a recording about, then let me know and often I can get hold of those resources for you and yeah just drop me a line let me know you were listening let me know what you liked didn't like where you were listening and remind me that there are real people out there listening into this because it just adds a little smile to my day I can't promise I'll always acknowledge like emails and stuff that you send individually because I'm frankly a bit rubbish at that but I honestly do read them all um, and they do all put a little spring in my step so you can email me pookie at cwmt.org and if you'd like interaction and a response the best place to get hold of me is Twitter and I am at Pookie H so that's P-O-O-K-Y-H on Twitter. Take care, have a great week and I will be back in your headphones in about a week's time. Bye.